So whenever there's a dollar flow, prices have to move a lot in order to induce the existing investors to move away. And by inferring this, I can then get at this number of 40 cents, meaning like a dollar flow into the ESG portfolio increases the aggregate value of ESG stocks by 40 cents. Innovations in Sustainable Finance, a University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Innovations in Sustainable Finance. I'm Julian Kerbel, Assistant Professor of Sustainable Finance at the University of St. Gallen. It's my great pleasure to have on the show with me today, Philip van der Beek. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be on. Philip, you, are, uh, you used to live in Switzerland until recently as a PhD student at EPFL, but now you've just started uh, as an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. Isn't that right? Yes, I joined here. Um, my contract started on the 1st of July, so I've just recently moved to Boston and uh, jumped right in. So this is my first, first semester here in Boston. Fantastic. Well, well, it, it's great that you have the time for this. Uh, we're we're all very proud of you at, at the Swiss Finance <laughs> Institute, uh, of course. So, so you know, we're we're excited for you. And yeah, tell us a little bit. How how is it these first couple of weeks? What's your experience? Yeah. So I can honestly say the the research and teaching atmosphere both here is pretty extraordinary. So first of all, of course the people, the research, of course, I, the Swiss Finance Institute is also extremely high quality. So I, I was used to that. And um, at, at HBS, it's, yeah, it's just like that. So there's, they, of course, an, an enormous focus on a like, collaboration, talking to each other. There's, uh, you know, always someone on the, on the hallways. Uh, everyone's, everyone knows what, what each other's doing. Nobody's locking themselves in the office. So it's a very, like a very nice collaborative atmosphere. And yeah, so the, the start has been really great. Um, they make sure that you get connected right away with everyone. You meet a lot of people right away. Um, so the onboarding process has been, has been phenomenal. And then the the research support general here is, I think I've never seen anything like it, just because there's essentially unlimited <laughs> research funding that you can essentially do whatever you want. There's really no constraints, which is, which is kind of nice when it comes to, for me especially, because I'm more on the data or a data side when it comes to my research. And that there's there's no limit when it comes to purchasing uh, creative data sets is a good thing to know. And then on the on the other side, so there's there's two sides of the the coin here at, uh, at HBS. One is the research, the other one is the teaching. Uh, and the teaching is of course as, as of very high value here. So they they value it a lot and they put an extreme amount of effort in it. And so this is I started teaching right away. So uh, this is my teaching term right now, and I'm teaching Fin One. And um, it's the fin, case fin method. Fin One is yeah. is what. Fin One is uh, the or it's the Finance One course that is the requ a required course in the MBA uh, curriculum, which is basic finance 101. So it gets everybody on board with the basic concepts on fi of finance, and then the second term they have Finance Two, where they speak a little bit more about the uh, yeah, detailed, more detailed topics. Well, Philip, I'm I'm so excited for you. That that sounds sounds really really good, and I'm confident that you'll put this freedom and the resources to good use. Um, so, so congratulations once again, and I, I would like to talk to you about uh, your paper, um, and I believe it was your your job market paper as well. Uh, it's called Flow Driven ESG Returns. I've become aware of that paper quite a long time ago, and I was instantly thinking that okay, this is something important that I need to uh, follow. So I followed the various versions of it. So you touch upon a fundamental question in sustainable investing, in my view, and that is. 
basically do sustainable investment funds matter, right? Your, your paper suggests, yes, they do. But I want to give you the word and uh, let you tell us what, perhaps let's start with what triggered you to think about this topic. Yeah, so I wasn't initially doing research in sustainable finance. So my, I, I started out doing research in just the effect that large institutional investors, their demand shocks and the flows that they receive can have on uh, the prices of financial securities. So here in this case, stocks. And so I was working on that, um, on the, yeah, the, the effects of BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, like large institutional investors and the effect that they can have on stock prices. And then at the same time, so I was starting to work on that in like 2018, and then in 20, that was exactly also the time when we saw really high returns on ESG labeled funds and uh, mutual funds and ETFs. And on top of these funds receiving apparently higher returns in the market, these, you also saw a lot in the news that uh, there's these, these labeled ESG funds were, were receiving a lot of inflows. And so that was sort of right in line with my research on like these big demand shocks by big institutional players and the effect that they can have on prices. And I was sort of seeing that connection there and like started investigating to what extent these high returns that these ESG funds had were just driven by like potentially the, or were connected to the flows that these ESG funds received. So that's kind of how I, um, how I started out. And then the whole topic was motivated essentially by the question, if you take a dollar, and you put it to uh, you put it into an ESG fund. What is that impact that that has on stock prices? So when you take a dollar, you put it into an ESG fund. That ESG fund buys some ESG stocks, and we can speak later about how I define you know ESG. But this is just going to be at a high level. So that ESG fund mm -hmm. buys ESG stocks in response to that flow, and so the impact that buying should have in equilibrium should be given by how willing the other investors are to give away the ESG stock to the ESG mutual fund. So the ESG mutual fund is buying these stocks from some existing shareholders, and the impact that buying should have is given by how willing the existing shareholders are to substitute away from that stock. And so I am quantifying in this paper, I'm quantifying essentially the willingness by other non-ESG investors to give away the ESG stocks to the ESG investor. And via that, I can quantify essentially the impact that a dollar flow has on stock prices. And then once you have the impact, you can compute by how much a dollar flow affects the return. Because when prices rise, that has an effect on the realized return. And then you can connect the flows to the realized returns. And I find that uh, the flows have a large impact on the realized returns through ESG investing. And the, the high returns that ESG funds received were pr actually primarily driven by this mechanism. So this effect that flows push up prices. Great. So that's already a, a great summary of the of the paper. Let's let's stick with with prices for for a mm -hmm. second and and just to just to get this straight. So so you're saying you are, for instance, the the ESG investor, and and I'm a regular investor. Now you receive some new money from your investor, so you want to go out and buy some stocks to put in your fund. And and I happen to own a stock that fits into your portfolio. That's a green stock. Mm -hmm. So now you come and call me and say, look, I'd like to buy, you know, however many of my shares and we'll have to agree on a price, right? Yeah. If I get this right, the point of your paper is the fact that I get a lot of calls and there are a lot of people trying to buy the same stock, then the price goes up. Yeah, essentially, let's say, 
let's say there's there's only us two investors and we're both like you you currently hold the ESG stock and I want to buy it. Okay. And so right. if you okay. the question is by how much does the price have to change for you to be willing to sell it to me? So let's say you're you have sort of like you think this is this is how much the stock is worth and you have a like certain willingness to hold on to it. And um, I say, I want to buy it from you. And there's a certain price where you say, okay, now I'm, I'm willing to sell it to you. If you're really unwilling to sell it to me, then uh, the price would have to go up by a lot for you to say, okay, now finally I'll, I'll sell it to you. And if you don't really care, then um, you may sell it to me right away uh, or with a like tiny or marginal price increase. And so what sort of traditional fin finance theory would say is that stocks are or investors are very easily willing to sell like any type of stock when the price moves by a small amount. And the reason is that stocks are generally viewed as fairly close substitutes. And so like let's say if you if you stay with the sort of the the workhorse framework in finance which is the the capital asset pricing model that many yeah. some of your listeners are familiar with, the capital asset pricing model says that the only thing that drives differences in returns or prices of stocks is the their exposure to market risk or their beta. So if two stocks have a similar beta, they should be very close substitutes in investors' portfolios. So if I want to buy a certain stock from you, then you'd be very easily willing to give that stock to me and just substitute towards some other stock that has a similar beta. And so if ESG and non-ESG stocks are viewed as or have similar betas here, then investors should be very easily willing, according to the standard theory, should be very easily willing to switch between the two. And when the price of the ESG stock goes up by a little bit, they would just be easily willing to sell it and substitute towards uh, the non-ESG stock. Right. I, I will sell it to you and, uh, you know, pocket that little difference and then just buy another stock that gives me the same returns exactly. and has the same risk profile. So, so yeah, it, it's rational to do that relatively soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so let's say now that you have also a slight preference for holding the ESG stock. So, of course, you care about return and risk, but also you just want to hold the ESG stock as well. And so then, of course, when you want to, when you have, when you derive a certain utility from just holding the ESG stock, then it would require a larger move in prices for you to shift away from it. And then uh, it would, then my demand shock for that stock or my, my extra demand for the ESG stock would um, leave a, like a larger impact uh, on the price here. So that's the, that's the general notion. And this, this notion of substitutability across stocks is very embedded in like many workhorse frameworks in, in finance. So the, the general view is that, or a, like a common view, is that impact investing should have a very small impact because, or ESG investing should have a very small impact because investors view ESG and non-ESG stocks as close substitutes. And if they actually do that, so like if you, I don't know, if you compute correlations among a bunch of stocks, you would probably, and, and stocks, many stocks are very high, ESG and non-ESG stocks are very highly correlated. You would assume now nah, there should be close substitutes. And in this case, that should, in theory, leave a very small impact on prices if there's extra demand for ESG stocks. But what I tried to do in this paper is drill down on exactly this willingness to substitute between ESG and non-ESG stocks. And uh, not just assume it from like some existing finance theory, but like uh, actually put a number on it. And when we once we've put a number on it, we can really exactly quantify the effect that a $1 flow has on prices. 
And 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 you do put a number to that, right? So so one of the headline findings is that one dollar flowing into mutual green funds increases the value of green stocks by forty cents. So it's yeah. kind of a, a relationship of one hundred to forty. That sounds like that sounds like quite a bit. So so I I was surprised. Uh, do you think it's big? Uh, yes, I th- it depends on what you compare it to. Uh, but maybe let me explain how I get to that number, and then we can like both sure, maybe discuss sure. okay. if, let, if give, that give number. Give us the full tour. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, if that number is big. So to to arrive at that number, so that a one dollar flow to an ESG fund re- increases the aggregate value of ESG stocks by forty cents. How do I get to that number? So that number, like, or computing that number, involves sort of three steps. The first step is to get a measure of ESG. So what does it mean? What, what is an ESG stock? And so I, we first have to sort of agree on like how we define it. Then we have to define flows into ESG stocks and measure those. And then the last thing is we have to compute this willingness to substitute between ESG and non-ESG. So these are the three steps. And so okay. first, like what, how, like let's set the stage sort of like what is ESG, at least in this paper, how do I define ESG? Now, there's many notions of what an ESG stock is, and we have maybe have very different perceptions on what we perceive a good, like what what we perceive as a good company. Especially when it comes to the social and governance dimension, there may be a lot of disagreement of investors on what they think is a socially good company. And so I want to take a more objective approach in this paper, and not use some like off the shelf like ESG score that where the results of the paper may like very heavily depend on the type of provider I use, but I will try to measure ESG based on what labeled ESG investors actually hold. So I will, uh, what, I, what I'm constructing is I am taking all labeled ESG funds in the US and I am computing the aggregate portfolio that they hold. Because they have to file their holdings with the SEC, I can construct essentially their portfolio weight in every stock. And then I can compare that to the portfolio that is held by other mutual funds, so by all non-ESG funds. And so the difference in the two portfolios is essentially a measure of ESG. So there's some stocks in the ESG portfolio that are overweighted relative to like the market portfolio or, the, or other investors' portfolios, and those will be ESG stocks, and the ones that are underweighted will be non-ESG. And so this measure is very close to like other objective, maybe sustainability indicators. For example, ESG funds overweight stocks with low CO2 emissions or solar energy companies, and they underweight stocks in the mining industry, fossil fuel stocks, and sin stocks. So, so, so you basically the first, follow yeah. the money in terms of, uh, or let me say, it's a revealed preference that you look at, the, the, the stocks exactly. that ESG funds actually do invest in. Uh, in yeah. excess of what a regular fund would do, right? Exactly. That's, Got it. It's a, you know, the technical term would be it's a revealed preference measure. So you look at what ESG investors actually do, like where they where they actually put their money, and I will label that as perceived ESG. And that may not necessarily be true ESG, right? But it is because you no know, investors may just be f- like fooled by the ratings that they follow, and uh, maybe the the key to a planet that we that is still inhabitable in a hundred years is not divesting from fossil fuels. Who knows? But the so this measure is just capturing what investors perceive to be, and right now investors perceive to be that fossil fuel stocks are bad, uh, and so that's why they underweighted. And that's the measure that I use. Yeah, well, at least they they put some money behind that. So so I think yeah. in that sense, it's 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 a credible measure. 
Yeah, so that's the first part. So now we've identified what I've defined ESG and non-ESG. And now we, since we have this ESG portfolio, which is the portfolio that is held by like labeled ESG funds, we have to compute the flows into it. So okay. the easy way to do it would be just to take all the flows that flow to these labeled ESG funds. But the, the number of like, explicitly labeled ESG funds that have like an ESG keyword in their name is very small because you don't capture all of the ESG investors in the market. So there may be some large pension funds that have a, like a division that uh, starts tilting towards ESG. So they hold, I don't know, 50% of their assets in the market portfolio and then the other 50 in like an ESG tilted portfolio. But you don't observe that. That's not a labeled ESG fund. And so there's a bunch of funds that you cannot capture that way. And so what I do is I essentially look at the holdings of all institutional investors, so not just the uh, labeled ESG funds, but other investment advisors, pension funds, insurance companies, banks, and compute the share of their portfolio that they hold in ESG stocks. And from that, I derive like a more comprehensive like aggregate measure of flows into this ESG portfolio. So, so in this case, how do you know which one is a flow into ESG and which one is just a flow into a regular in investor's pocket. Yeah, so essentially when you're, let's say we take a large pension fund and we, okay. we, we could compute the portfolio that that pension fund holds, we can decompose that portfolio into different, like say, managed portfolios. Mm -hmm. Via like a simple regression, we can take their portfolio weights and we can decompose them into like how much they hold in the market portfolio, how much they hold in a tech-weighted portfolio, how much they hold in other like pharma French five-factor portfolios, and then how much they hold in the ESG portfolio, controlling for like their, their tilts towards like other characteristics managed portfolios. Oh, I see. So, so you basically yeah. establish to what extent this particular institutional investor's portfolio is an ESG portfolio. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, for example, I was um, BlackRock used to have just hold the market portfolio essentially in 2012. So 100% of their assets were just in the market weighted portfolio. Now, in 2020, I think 15% of their assets are in the ESG portfolio and 85% in the market portfolio. So they don't perfectly hold the market portfolio anymore. By dropping some funds, uh, some some stocks out of, of out of different funds, their aggregate portfolio that BlackRock holds is not perfectly in the market portfolio anymore. It is partly tilted towards the ESG portfolio. And so I was, <laughs> I was giving this, I was giving a talk at uh, at BlackRock on this, and they were surprised to see that I was able to identify this like tilt from their like quarterly holdings that they're not holding the market portfolio anymore, but they have this like fifty approximately fifteen percent. The numbers are like rough, but approximately fifteen percent just tilted in this ESG uh, in this ESG portfolio. And so you could do that for all investors and get it like a very comprehensive, like, uh, like an aggregate measure of ESG flows, and that is around two trillion. So the cumulative flows into the ESG portfolio amount to from twenty fifteen to two thousand twenty or twenty ten to two thousand twenty around to like two trillion dollars. So I should think of that as as flows, as in new money that enters the market. Is that correct? Or could it be reallocated from elsewhere as well? This is capturing both. And I cannot distinguish between the two, unfortunately, okay. given the data. So the data I have is only the, the stock holdings of institutional investors. So I don't see whether this is like a trade is motivated by money coming outside of the stock market into the fund or whether it's reallocation from one investor to another. Right. Okay. 
So it's just everything will be cross-sectional. So any since I cannot capture net in and outflows into the stock market, a $1 ESG flow will be a $1 outflow out of the aggregate market portfolio here. So that's $2 trillion we're flowing into the ESG portfolio coming out of the market portfolio. So it's been just, the, yeah, just a cross-sectional reallocation of money. The, the logic being that if it hadn't gone into the ESG portfolio, it would have gone into the aggregate market portfolio. Exactly. Okay. So that, yeah, the aggregate effect that, for, for example, if there's just money flow outside flowing into ESG funds, that would have an effect on ESG stocks and on all stocks and on the, and on the aggregate market. And so I'm just muting that effect on the aggregate market, only looking at the relative effects of ESG versus non-ESG. All right. Yeah. So that is the second step. So we have the ESG measure, we have the flows, and now it's the, the third part is what impact do the flows leave on prices? Let me just interrupt you very quickly. So, so it did take you quite some time to do all this. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. There's it's three like major steps, and that's also why the paper is, um, yeah, quite long and not the easiest to sell because there's very many like parts that can be attacked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because it's not just one idea. It's like three things that, that go into it. Okay, well, at least it'll, yeah. it's worth listening to this podcast because this will probably be faster than reading the whole thing, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, so <laughs> okay, if, I, so, if I hurry up with a third stage. Sorry, uh, sorry. so you were on to step uh, three. Uh, yes, I'll let you, I'll let you yeah. report on it. Step three is, okay, we have our ESG measure, we have the flows. Now the question is, how much do the flows affect prices? So for that, we need a measure of how willing the existing shareholders of ESG companies are to substitute away from ESG stocks. So whenever an ESG fund is buying, you have to convince the other shareholders to sell it. And the question is, by how much do price have to move to convince, to convince them to sell it? One way would be just to like take a, take a certain number that would be sped out by an existing model. And most existing asset pricing models would spit out a number that is close to zero. Mm -hmm. Meaning that you buy a you buy a, an ESG stock and the price moves by like pretty close to zero dollars just because investors are very easily willing to give away the ESG stock. Now, how do I? I don't. I'm not just taking a number from existing model. I'm trying to compute that number like from how in, from what investors actually do. So what I do is I look at how willing investors are to trade different stocks by looking at how they how their portfolios change over time. And so let's uh, take a simple example. Um, investor holds 100 shares of Apple, which is a very green company in one quarter, and 120 shares in the next quarter. Um, and so what I can compute is every quarter, I compute, can compute every investor's trade, uh, quarterly trade in a stock. And I can see how much their trades respond to changes in prices. And so you would assume that, for example, if the price of Apple goes up by a lot for, and we're controlling for, let's say, the fundamental value of Apple, then you should see many funds like selling a lot of Apple. And so by this, by, yeah, so essentially you can look at how investors trade in relation to how prices move to identify how aggressively they would be yeah, rebalancing their portfolio when, when prices change. And what I find is essentially that investors do not very aggressively rebalance their portfolios when the price of ESG stocks changes. And so that what that means, yeah, sorry, you, were, you had a question? No, no, I'm just, uh, so, so just trying to make sense of that for, for myself. So it, it means that investors are somehow slower to react to price changes than the 
standard models would suggest. Yeah, so standard models would suggest that prices move by, let's say, 1%, and investors would almost sell the, their entire holdings or like even establish a huge short position, uh, huge short position when a price just moves up by 1%, holding everything else constant. But what we see in the data is price moves up by 1%, not many investors react at all. And so that in the right now in the academic literature is referred to as inelastic behavior. Yeah. So investors don't respond very much to price changes, which is yeah, which is called an inelastic investor demand. And so uh, what what inelastic investor demand implies is that prices have to move a lot in order to induce investors to reallocate their portfolios. So they don't respond to small price changes. So prices have to move a lot for them to to start moving. And so that is the reason why ESG investors can have essentially a large impact on prices because the investors that are currently holding the stocks, they're inelastic. So they're not responding all that much to price changes. So prices have to move a lot for them to rebalance their portfolios and to accommodate the demand from ESG funds. And so that is the underlying like intuition or that's this, this coefficient essentially, like how willing are they to move when prices change? I'm identifying from their trades. And so now we have the three components together. Very nice. So yeah, this 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 notion of elasticity, just to compare that, that, that so maybe something that most people can relate to. So I, so I used to make this example that in the in the case of sausages, right? If some people they uh no, they they turn decide to become vegetarian for uh, animal welfare and, and and climate reasons perhaps as well, and then you could argue well if you do that then just the price of sausages will go down because you consume fewer sausages and then the people who still eat sausages they will just eat more of them, but but the thing is with sausages there's only so much you can eat right so so there's there people are pretty inelastic they're not going to just consume the double or triple amounts of sausages easily. Uh, whereas with stocks, you know, they, you know, you can think of them as something being very, very elastic because if if there is an underpriced stock on the market, you know, I'll buy from that as much as I can if if I think it's underpriced. Isn't isn't that right? So, so that's kind of yeah, where the that, idea yeah. that this, that it's pretty elastic comes from, right? But you show it's not quite as much so as 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 you might suppose. Yeah. So that's a. Um... This 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 sort of old but now recently revived literature in asset pricing that exactly tries to tries to get at what you're what you're talking about is that a general notion of demand and finance is that demand is extremely elastic. So as you said, prices move by a little bit, and then in like deep pocketed arbitrageurs are quick to step in and uh, just trade against that. And so these deep pocketed arbitrageurs, in the language that we just established, would be extremely elastic investors. So they, the price moves by a little bit and they just establish a very large position that corrects the price. Now, that is the case for, let's say, small price moves at a, like a very high frequency. And at this point, or at these, for, these, for these small demand shocks, they're usually very easily accommodated, let's say, by a market maker that is willing to you know, sell you or buy you the stock in a certain bidder ask. At a certain size of demand shock, though, it becomes uh, more relevant of who is actually owning the majority of the shares and how willing are they to uh, give them away or trade them. 
And so the the amount of like people that are very elastic or are trading extremely aggressively, the amount of assets that they hold is relatively small. So they can accommodate like small demand shocks, but when there's a huge shift, like a $2 trillion shift to ESG funds, then their capacity is quickly absorbed. And then you start moving to, uh, try, you're, you're, trying, you're, you're gonna try to have to induce like slower moving, maybe funds that have a mandate to sell, uh, to sell you those stocks. And those those funds are much more inelastic, so they're trading much less aggressively. And so for those, arguably, prices have to move much more. Now the question is still, and I think that's uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, you no, no, go on, go in? on. Yes. Okay. The question is still, of course. Let's say then there's a large demand shock, and the stock really hasn't changed. Why can the price move away so f- so far from what we finance maybe refer to as a fundamental value? And so, of course, if the fundamental value was perfectly known then investors should be very aggressively trading against ESG stocks. And if, there was, if there's no risk involved in the stock reverting back to its fundamental value. But of course, that's a very strong assumption, right? That's the, like an ESG stock is not like a treasury bond where you know for sure it's going to pay you a thousand in, uh, in 10 years. It's, more, it's, it's, it's much less certain that the stock will revert to what you view as your fundamental value or what the true fundamental value actually is. So, of course, prices, since, since there's no clear notion of a fundamental value for, for many investors, it's not clear that this is a direct arbitrage opportunity, the fact that investor demand has an impact on prices, uh, because there just may be a lot of risk involved in trading against that. Yes. Would you agree that, um, that Tesla stock is an interesting example in that case? Because in, in the early days, Tesla basically, you know, didn't have any revenue or, you know, hardly, hardly any profits. Uh, they, they were producing very few cars compared to the big ones. And, and they already had, you know, a pretty high valuation, surprisingly high valuation compared to the fundamentals of the company. And that may have been at the time partly driven by ESG investors who just bought into the company because they thought, well, this is, you know, good for the climate, electric cars. And that, at that point, there were a lot of short sellers who shorted Tesla who, who thought, well, this is going to all fall apart and come back to where it belongs. But somehow now the company is actually extremely profitable and sells a lot of cars. Uh, so, so that I think reflects that that risk that people have that you just at the time you just didn't know what is going to be the the true value of Tesla in the future. It, it is by definition in the future. Uh, would you yeah. say that's a fair example? Yeah, and there's especially with with respect to ESG investing, there's this notion is fairly important because when investors are let's say a bunch of ESG investors are buying a, a very a very green company, then trading against that or being on the other side of that is very risky in the sense that there may a lot there may be a lot of future flows coming into that stock further pushing up the price. And so at a very high level a similar thing may have been like with GameStop and the the frenzy of meme stocks on Robinhood where investors are essentially reluctant to be on the other side because they're the the chances of further demand pushing the price further away is very much there. And so for ESG that is Certainly, I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying that this is the main reason why investors are inelastic, but it's one source of inelastic behavior of why investors are unwilling to aggressively arbitrage ESG stocks. Is because there is this risk of future future demand further pushing the price away. But this is getting at like sort of. There's a many sources of, of why inelastic demand may arise. Right, the the key sort of financial economics 101 
uh, source of the inelastic demand would be risk aversion. Then another potential one may be trading constraints, mandates. So there's a bunch of different sources of where inelastic behavior may like may come from. Um, I'm not in this paper, not taking a stance on why investors are so inelastic with respect to ESG. Just the fact that they are means that ESG flows can have a large impact on prices. Yeah. So whenever there's a dollar flow, prices have to move a lot in order to induce the existing investors to move away. And via this, or via inferring this, I can then get at this number of 40 cents, meaning like a dollar flow into the ESG portfolio increases the aggregate value of ESG stocks by 40 cents. Fantastic. So now, now I think we've come full circle and 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 how the number comes about so so we can get back to debating whether whether it's a lot it, it seems to me it's it's quite a bit because if i if i interpret this correctly that means all the inflows into esg funds in the last decade let me say which you know is in the trillions you know divide that by well take 40% of that and distribute it across the stocks that they invested in so so that that's a significant boost in value for all of those stocks. Uh, so certainly noticeable. And that's exactly one of the applications now. I, we've established our methodology with the three steps. And one application is now to see, look, there's, there seems to be these large flows and we have the, our 40 cents impact. Let's put it together and compute the returns that ESG funds would have gotten mm -hmm. without this price pressure or demand effect. And what I find is that, first of all, with the demand effect, so these are the actual returns that the funds received, they outperformed the market um, in the past six years. If you take out this effect that flows had via this multiplier effect, then actually ESG funds would have underperformed the market. And so this suggests that if you take into account the effect of this growth of ESG investing, and then ESG investors would actually have to pay in order to invest in line with their preferences. So they would have to give up some returns in order to invest in line with their preferences. Because when I take out this flow-driven effect, realized ESG returns are lower than for the market. So there is this kind of puzzle, right? Or for some people, it may not be a puzzle, but why ESG funds had higher returns than non-ESG funds or the market? Because investors should be willing to give up some returns mm -hmm. um, in order to invest in line with their preferences. Or in other words, investors that want to have an impact on the on the world, they should reduce the cost of capital of good firms, which is the same as saying they should expect lower returns. Right. But really, when we look at the realized returns, they were higher. So that's, in a sense, a puzzle. But it's not a puzzle when you, when you take into account this demand effect. And when you take into account this demand effect, then it suggests that investors would actually, that ESG investors had lower returns than the market. And so that's in line with them causing a lower cost of capital for good firms and thereby having this positive impact that they're hoping to have. Yeah, so it is, it is uh, interesting that ESG investors seem to have their cake and eat it too, at least in that period that, that you studied, right? So, and I, I think it also implies that, you know, there's a bit of a difference between early ESG investors and late ESG investors, isn't there? So, so, the, so the ones who basically you know, were at the very beginning and, and established positions in these stocks profited most, whereas those that came in along the way, uh, they profited less. And the ones that, you know, somehow come at the very end, it's not, not clear if they benefit from that valuation boost. Yeah. 
Is that yeah, at a very high level, yeah. If you think about an ESG investor in equilibrium, which is this uh, the financial economics notion that uh, that we like to use, in equilibrium, the ESG investor should have lower expected returns going forward, and that is these lower expected returns come about by a higher price today and lower expected returns going forward. But how do we get to the higher price today? So the higher price today can only come about via an increase in prices, which is a realized return. Yeah. And so, of course, if you think about these, these different periods, so we have a period of non-ESG investing, and then we have the period where ESG investing is you know, very large. In this transition period where it's growing, you have higher realized returns. And if you're at the beginning of this transition period, the ESG investor has good returns. Of course, if you're entering at the very end of this transition period, you're getting the low expect returns going forward that you're supposed to get because that's what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to lower the cost of capital for these firms. But in the transition period, if you're the early one, yeah, you're reaping the benefits of this transition period, which is the high realized returns. So, so what does that, um, you know, if we, we go about the, the period that you studied in, in your paper, what does that imply for the future? So, Yeah, so what the, this paper suggests is that since a large portion or the, the, like actually more than the, uh, the largest portion of the outperformance of ESG funds is because of this increase in inflows, uh, this suggests that if we stop the inflows today, then we don't expect ESG funds to continue to outperform. And in fact, if the flows revert, then we expect ESG funds to underperform. So it depends a little bit on your stance on where flows are going to go. So if you're if you're assuming that this ESG trend is not at its, at its peak yet, and there's still some some countries where uh, there's a lot of scope for ESG tilts at ESG flows to increase, then there may be continued outperformance of ESG funds for the next, let's say, five to 10 years. And then after that, you'd have lower expected returns going forward. And so it depends a little bit on like uh, where you view uh, flows or, or where you think flows are going to go. But this, this kind of way of thinking about it puts a lot of emphasis on the importance of predicting like demand shocks by investors and flows. Yes. So there is. I'm working partly with a fund uh, or the hedge fund that is doing that, that is trying to predict the flows of different investors and trying to, yeah, because they will leave a large impact on prices. And so knowing where flows are going to go is a source of return predictability. Then for the case of sustainable investing, depends a little bit on what you're trying to accomplish. So are you trying to have the highest return possible or the highest impact or a combination of the two? Yeah, so let's, Think about that. If if you are trying to have the highest impact, what what does your study? What would you advise? How would you go about that? Are there certain stocks you might focus on, or you know, if you explicitly? Yeah. And I'm not suggesting this is for everyone, but it's something that I'm interested in, right? If you say, okay, I'm I'm a capitalist, I I have money to invest. How would you do that in a way that maximizes the impact that you have, not the return? Yeah. So first, we should establish that this impact is only on prices. So that may not be the re that may not be real impact. So it only like so far that's only the impact on the stock price. So you try to maximize. You try to be as impactful as possible via buying the stocks where you have the most impact on prices. Now setting aside that this may not have an effect on firm behavior at all. But let's uh, let's just. First of all, let's, establish. let's hold that. Let's yeah. hold that and discuss that in just a second. Let's hold yeah. that. Yeah, we, we'll discuss that later. Uh, but so first, the first thing is you want to buy the companies, the, buy the ESG companies, where you can have the largest effect on prices. Then what this, the, um, the model suggests is that you should buy those companies 
that are held by the least elastic investors. So intuitively, you should buy those ESG companies that are held by passive funds. Uh, because for passive funds or primarily passive funds, uh, they don't like to switch away or they cannot often legally switch away from the stock because it's in their benchmark. And so for those stocks that are held by passive or inelastic investors, prices have to move a lot mm -hmm. uh, for them to induce uh, for, to induce them to switch away. So you have a larger impact on stocks that are held by more passive or less elastic investors and a smaller impact on stocks that are held by that are primarily held by hedge funds who are well, very easily willing to sell it when prices move up by a little bit. And I'm actually testing that in the paper. Like so where we have our let's say 100 different like very green or ESG stocks, is the impact that flows have higher for the stocks held by passive funds and yes that's what I find. So the impact of flows is higher or is, is lower for, for the stocks held by hedge funds and higher for stocks held by passive inelastic investors. What, what kind of stocks should I think of if you say stocks held by passive funds? Don't they hold almost any stock? Yeah, so passive funds in, in this in this meaning means not a fund that is necessarily just tracks the S&P 500, but a fund that is that doesn't trade very aggressively. So for example, holds a valuated portfolio of a subset of stocks. So it may be, you know, it's, it may be an active fund in the sense that it doesn't hold the market portfolio, but it doesn't trade a lot. So it prices move, it doesn't adjust, it doesn't rebalance their portfolio all that much. Oh, so basically kind of a, a buy and hold investors. Essentially, Someone who just yes. wants to yeah. keep keep what they have. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's where you might go. That's if you want to have the highest impact on prices. If you want to have exactly. the highest, yeah. If you want to yourself have the highest return, you should okay. buy the stocks that you think are going to have the highest demand shock in the future or that are going to receive the highest inflows in the future. And pair that with also this notion of, of course, this impact is going to be larger for the stocks that are held, again, by more passive funds. So there are these, they, they, but of course, when you want to predict returns, you have to predict the underlying demand component. So you'd have to predict the flows. But then you should, if you want to maximize your own return, you should buy the stocks that are going to receive a lot of ESG inflows. If I, you know, if I wanted to go about identifying those stocks, is is uh, looking at the free flow uh, first proxy, or so looking at the flow, you want to identify the stocks that are going to receive the highest inflows. What I would look at is the ESG funds, uh, explaining the flows to to ESG funds. Um, so flows usually have a few key determinants, but flows tend to be highly autocorrelated. So a high flow today predicts, usually tends to predict high future flows tomorrow. And then looking at the portfolios that the underlying funds hold. So let's say a fund receives a high inflow today, they're likely going to receive further inflows into the future. And then you can look at the portfolio that they hold, and that gives you a good prediction of where wh which stocks they are, they are likely to buy. So if you, get a if you have a good model for, for, for flows, and flows are driven by a bunch of things, and I'm getting into some of the details in the paper, they are, if you can predict flows very well, that gives you an edge. And so, for example, what I find in the paper is that if you have a, just an ESG keyword in your name, you get 2% higher inflows. So if you see, for example, fund managers changing... In the, in the sample period. Yeah. So if you see fund managers changing their name, then likely they're just going to get mechanical, uninformed ESG inflows by investors that are just you know feeling good about having an ESG keyword in their fund name. Yeah. Yeah. 
so let's get back to the, you know, I think it's very fair of you to say that this is the impact just on prices. And, you know, there is still a way to go from that impact towards some sort of impact in the sense of uh, achieving sustainable development goals. Uh, and, and, you know, sadly, I think the UN just reported that progress towards those goals is uh, much slower than hoped for, and, and there's a long ways to go. So do you have any thoughts to offer on on how that might be linked the, the this impact on on share prices and and then this real impact yeah i think there's an interesting component now for or say importance for sustainable investing to you know improve the world not maybe via directly via the product that the firms are offering but via investor demand and so let me sort of explain what i mean is that if we Let's say, let's say firms are the main contributor to climate change or CO2 emissions, and we want to change the behavior of firms. So what would you change in the behavior of, or how do you best, without maybe too much regulation, change the behavior of the, of the firm, maybe in the most natural way? So there's, there's two ways, uh, and th those were in the, in the classical finance notions, those are the same, which is changing consumer preferences. So if you change consumer preferences and consumers stop buying products with high CO2 emissions, then firms will readjust their production process and firms that just still offer these high CO2 emission products will die. Now, of course, in, the, in a classical finance notion, this consumer demand will be perfectly also reflected in the current share price. So by, by maximizing current share prices, firms will then yeah, behave in, a, in the way that we want them to. But if there's a a discrepancy between consumer demand and current share prices, then uh, we have to ask, like, what are the firms really targeting, or what are they when they're when they're maximizing share price? Are they maximizing investor preference or consumer preference? So, what the paper is just that that I have suggested that it, it's a lot of investor demand that's driving like valuations and stock prices of companies, and may not be really the the demand of the consumer that is that is consuming the end product. And so there is, and if and and so if firms are maximizing or yeah, maximizing their current share price, they're essentially catering to the preferences of investors uh, as opposed to consumers. And they may and in in an inelastic world, there may be a difference between the two. And so there, once you start catering to the preferences of investors, there's a lot of yeah a lot of new scope for maybe not changing consumer behavior but changing investor behavior. And so. One like kind of cool like notion about this is that investors are global, right? So investors are able to price the externalities of firms uh, much better than maybe like local consumers. And so like via, via firms maximizing their share price, they can internalize maybe ex like or they internalize the externalities much better because their underlying investor base it has a global focus, and any investor can buy the shares or be a shareholder in that firm and express their interest or their environmental preference by buying or selling the company, whereas consumers may be local and they can't. And so there's, I think on that end, there's a lot of scope for sustainable investing because it is like a global policing of firms. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought. In, in some sense, it's there's a certain danger of this idea of corporations not really serving customers' interests. But yeah, I think it's it's important to... Yeah, just to recognize these empirical findings that that firms appear to also cater quite a bit to to investor preferences, and uh, and and then carefully think about how 
you know, how, how that might be a force for the better. I, I agree with that idea that the global nature of investors has, has something to add. Also, if you think about regulations being very, very different in different jurisdictions when it comes to, you know, climate change, uh, equality, all, all kinds of things. So, so there is a role that investors can, can certainly play. Yeah. And so, of course, that depends then what we're, we're established so far is that, okay, investors have tend to have a high impact on the, the stock prices, regardless, let's say, of consumer preferences. So investor preferences tend to be reflected in, let's say, the cross-section of valuations. Now, the question is, does that have an effect on the company's actual behavior? So do they, do they cater to, the investor pre, uh, to investor preferences in reality? Um, and so that gets now at the real effects of ESG investing. So far, we looked at the price effects. They tend to be there. Are there real effects? So do companies, when they receive the, an increase in their share price because of ESG flows, do they actually, for example, issue new shares or invest more? And so I think that's, I haven't looked at it in this paper, but I'm like working on like stuff in similar directions is at the real effect of ESG flows. So a $1 flow to an ESG fund raises the prices of ESG stocks by 40 cents. How much investment does this lead to, or does this, does this drive by these ESG companies? So can we establish sort of a real multiplier that is getting at you put a dollar into an ESG fund, it results in this much real investment by good companies. And then we can really yeah, target true impact, not only price impact. Yes, I think that that's exactly the direction that that uh, future research should go into. I'm I'm thinking there there are two channels, right? One is whether the company actually raises new money, given that uh, more beneficial valuation that they have in the market, and invests more. The other channel is whether companies react to that sort of ex ante because they know if they behave in a certain way, the price of their share will go up. Right? That's another channel. And there's, I think to me, there's a bit the question, are companies aware of that? Do they have a good feeling for how, how, what, what is the magnitude of these effects, right? As a manager, you're kind of trying to evaluate, well, you know, investing in that new product line, uh, will that get me into the favor of these ESG investors? And what is that going to do to my share price? I think those are questions that are very difficult to answer for the particular firm at the moment. Yeah, especially when it comes to, like, let's say they're, they generate an existing product. Who values that more? The end consumer, who then like starts maybe buying the product more, the company will have better sales, and that's why it's reflected the share price? Or the investor who directly sees, oh, the company is producing a, a product with lower CO2 emissions or with sustainable energy. And that's why I'm, I'm starting to buy that company. And that is reflected in the share price that way. And so yeah. the two may not be the same in the notions that we spoke about before. And so the question is, who, do, who can companies fool more easily? Mm -hmm. The end consumer or the, or the investor? Yeah, but but or rather than a question of who can you fool, also just to have intelligence and what are the preferences, right? In the same way as you do, you know, you survey your customers to figure out what what is it probably that they want more. A similar question arises on the part of the investors because it's not as classically, you know, margins, uh, sales, revenue, and so forth. It, it is also that ESG component, and the question is very much what is that. Yeah, and that goes back to what we spoke about with the local versus global. The, your consumer preferences may likely 
not may, maybe if especially if you're selling locally may not internalize all the extra, like bad externalities that your firm may have on other countries on global climate whereas investors are global and maybe anywhere and can incorporate or impound their preferences into share prices yeah even though they don't live in the same area they're not a, they're not purchasing the end product yeah now so thank you so much. I think it is uh, it's a super interesting paper that yeah just um, stroke a nerve with me. I think it touches upon one of these really fundamental questions about what this phenomenon of sustainable investing does in the world. And even as you pointed out, it's you know for for now it's just the impact on prices. Uh, it, it's very important to to carry this further and uh, and a great contribution. So you know all the best with the paper, and and thank you so much for uh, for sharing your insights. I'd like to ask you uh, kind of to finish it off. If you have, uh, you know, the podcast is called Innovations in Sustainable Finance and, and you have some really particular insights through your research. Is there some innovation or change in, in the space of sustainable finance or investing that, that you would like to see that, that you think would be worth going after? Um, I think maybe maybe two, let's say I'll, I'll do two changes. One is, to if investor demand tends to matter that much, the role of greenwashing becomes extremely important by ESG funds. And so like many ESG funds right now can label themselves ESG without really deviating from, let's say, the S&P 500, which uh, gives investors a feeling that they're doing something great, but they're not having an impact at all because they're essentially putting just putting their money in the market portfolio. But what this so paper not showed, even on the price. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not even on the price. Um, and yeah. so going after that, given that there is a potentially very large effect that can, investors can have, that raises the importance of greenwashing also in the, in the mutual fund space. Um, and then the other one is emphasizing the, the difference, and we didn't really speak about it, but the difference between like this price pressure channel and then shareholder activism. So you may like buy oil companies because you want to go in there and actually and actively change them. And so there's these two effects, right? You buy oil companies and therefore you may push up their price a little bit, which is sort of a negative effect. But then you go into the shareholder meeting and you try to take change the, sh uh, the corporate strategy. And so that is the, uh, the second part of ESG investing. And I think differentiating between the two and knowing the interactions is, I think, very important. And I don't feel like when pe when many people when many people invest in ESG funds they know what the objective of the fund is yes the interaction between allocation and engagement is, uh, yeah. is something that'll keep us busy I, I completely agree fantastic okay so so these are two great ideas thank you so much Philip uh, for being on the show and yeah and, and and good luck thank you so much for having me it's been a super fun conversation and uh, I hope we get to do it soon again with a different paper. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. So, so all the best at HBS. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Innovations in Sustainable Finance. A University of St. Gallen podcast by Julian Kölbel.